So we're going to have a word of prayer, and we'll look into the verses we have here this evening. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the opportunity to be together with other saints, and we ask that your spirit, as always, would be the one that teaches us the things that are clearly and plainly written on the pages of your word, and that we might be able to appreciate them, uh, even be able to perhaps put things into practice where appropriate, and we would thank you for it. Amen. So in 1 Thessalonians tonight, in chapter 2, First Thessalonians chapter 2, it's taken us a while to get down through this chapter, uh, perhaps longer than I was thinking, but if you remember most of what Paul, is Paul reviewing how the Thessalonians got saved or became went from an unbeliever to, to believers? No. no. Primarily in this section, he's talking about their learning Christian truth, truth about how to live the Christian life. And he, this is what he's been explaining to them, reviewing with them, encouraging them. Uh, and I'm just going to fast forward to chapter 3, which we're not going to look at, but in chapter 3, Paul states in there, one of the reasons he's doing these things is because he had to leave earlier than he was expecting. Persecution became very intense in Thessalonica, and for the sake of the Thessalonian believers, Paul left and headed down to Berea. So he's only in Thessalonica. These, he evangelizes and teaches these people God's word in a little over five weeks, or around five weeks. That's not a lot of time, but he taught them a lot of truth in five weeks. And we've said this before. You couldn't do this today unless you did you did Paul's model. Because today, we get somebody saved, and then you meet with them once or twice a week for an hour Bible study. That doesn't cut it. But Paul met with these people every day, and from what we know, probably taught them for several hours every day. But people didn't go home and turn on the TV and sit around and read books. Books, I mean, a lot of people didn't own books things. So people took time to be together and to do things. And so as a result, these people learned truth very quickly. And that truth made a difference in their life. And that significance of the truth making a difference in their life is where we pick up tonight in verse 13, where Paul says, And for this reason, then, we also constantly thank God that when you receive from us the word of God's message, or uh, this word of God, uh, you accepted it not as it was not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God, which now works in you who believe. So is he saying, looking at this, that when we spoke the word of God to you on the Christian life, you didn't listen and going, oh, this is just a, another person giving me some good advice. You took it and you were saying, this is God speaking to us. This is the word of God speaking to us. And this is important. And you took that seriously. There's a parallel, I think, in 1 John 2, when he writes to the different groups. He talks, I'm writing to the children. He's talking about levels of maturity is what he's talking about. He's not talking about kids and then young men and then older men. He's talking on the level of spiritual maturity. And if you look at 1 John chapter 2, 
1 John chapter 2, in verse 12, he says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. And I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, again, goes back, talking about a different group of children, but and remember, these children might be 35 or 50 years old, but they're young believers. That's what he means by children. And you fathers, those are believers that have been saved for a number of years and they've grown and matured. Uh, I've written to you fathers uh, because you have known him who, is, who has been from the beginning. And I've written to you young men because you are strong. So these young men have learned how to let God strengthen them. This is important. Uh, and the word of God abides in you, and you've overcome the wicked one. And that expression, the word of God abides in you, means that when they had the, the word of God talk to them, they didn't sit there with the word of God and go, but, 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 wait, 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 ah, no, 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 no. It's like what, what they learned, they were able to go, yeah, okay. And they were okay with that. And they were calm with that. And they were subtle with that. That word abide in there just doesn't mean that it's in you. It means that it's at ease in you. It's comfortable in you. That's the, that whole concept of that, that Greek word that's translated abide is that it's, a thing is settled down and it's calm there. It's okay. And he says, and, and, but that's a, the reason I bring you over here is this is a sign of maturity. See? These, these, these are young men because they've advanced beyond the stage of children. Children are still learning stuff, and they're going, okay, and, and they're still trying to put stuff together. Well, well this, this isn't, but the young men have come to the place where when the Word of God is taught, they're not wrestling with it anymore. They're not fighting with the Word of God going, but this and but that. They're able to appreciate what God said in His Word. And so it's a sign of maturity as he says this. And so if we go back over to 1 Thessalonians 2, one of the things he, and this isn't, so this isn't identical situation because the Thessalonians are really just beginning at this point. But even as beginning, they're already showing some smaller beginning point of maturity because he says that you received the word not like it was from men, but you received as it truly is the word of God. So they would say, well, Paul taught us this. They realized that when Paul was teaching them things, Paul was teaching them God's word. Now, lots of people in lots of churches pick up Bibles and teach things. We could, I could sit here and do a Bible study from the word of God and it not be the word of God. Everybody understand that, right? You can take the word of God and misrepresent what it actually says, and then that's not the word of God in, in that regard. So he goes on from here, and, he's, and he not only then says that they've received it, but he goes on and he says at the last part of the verse, this is in verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 2. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, back there, uh, and Oh, and by the way, the word that's translated accepted there is the word you welcomed it. You welcomed it as though it really was the word of God. But then he says, and it's that word now, the end of verse 13, and the word of God, which also then performs its work in you or works in you 
that who, that believe. And we have a, a verb here which takes the base of the word work in the Greek and adds to it a, a preposition, which is the preposition in. And it means to in work. And I went, I, I was doing this last night because this is one of the things I've never done with this word. I've gone through this word lots of places in the New Testament, and I've looked in lots of Greek lexicons for the New Testament, and they give different definitions. All are somewhat the same, but I wanted to know, how did the Greeks use this outside the New Testament? And the Greeks used it always of some sort of a work that happened inside you. An example from Greek, there was the idea, if they gave you a, some medicine, and you took that medicine, and you got better, or improved, got better, I guess same thing, that was called, that that was effective, or it did a work in you, the medicine, you took it internally, it does whatever it's supposed to do, and in you it did a work. So the idea of this work this particular word always has the idea of a work that goes on inside you. Not just a work out here, but a work, a personal work that's going on inside. And he says that's what the Word of God does. The Word of God does personal work in you. And he says it is doing that in you that are believing. Now what does that personal work result in? Verse 14. In fact, that word I'm just going to say... That word about that in work, my conclusion I've come to, and I'm just going to, just kind of, we're not going to spend the time going through this, but when it talks about the work of God, it's always used of God personally working in an individual. And I'm just ask you, does everything that, that God accomplishes, does he always accomplish it by personally, presently causing that to happen? No. Some examples. He gave the law to Israel. There are two agents through which he used to give the law. What are those two agents? Do you know? Jesus. Angels and Moses. Yeah. So God didn't personally chisel it out on stone and walk down and hand it to Israel. He had, he says, angels and Moses that gave the law like that. When he just, when he went to get Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah. Did he go down and, and go, what, out of the city, out of Sodom? No, he sent two angels down there to do that. So we have a number of examples. Uh, in fact, even, does God rule over the world? Yes, he does. But how does, according to the book of Daniel, how does he rule over the world? Even Romans 13 tells us this. There's angels and there's human rulers. And those human rulers aren't always good people. But he still uses them for ruling over the world. Nebuchadnezzar was a guy that God says he was one of those men that God had put in charge of the world. And Nebuchadnezzar was arrogant and didn't believe in God. And God, he eventually did believe in God because God did something in, in Nebuchadnezzar. But those are examples of the fact that God sometimes works through agents. This word, whenever it occurs, with God's work, always indicates God personally working in an individual. Because God does personally work in us in terms of our salvation. But how do you put that together with um, the word of God? You said that word from the Holy Ghost. 
I would I would say that the the key to that is is the word is not just something out here that they're hearing, but it's actually they've internalized what they've heard so that it's in there so that as they're thinking about life, they're going, oh, God says this and God is telling me he's doing this. And so they're relating to those truths. Um, what's that being the work of the Spirit too? Yes, yes, exactly. So I, let's take a look. The teacher and the dwelling. Yeah, so let's take a look just at one example uh, on this, and let's go to Galatians chapter. Well, we can look at two since we're going to Galatians. We're going to go to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. And in the New American Standard, at the very least, this is a place where the verse, <laughs> verses don't line up between the Greek and the English, but that's okay. In English, in the New American Standard, verse 20 says, I have been... Oh. What? Oh. Oh, okay. Verse 20, he says, I have been jointly crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Now notice what he says. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith concerning the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me or delivered himself for me. Now what he's telling us in this context, this is, this is a kind of an application of what he tells us in Romans 6, where he says in Romans 6 that when you believed into Jesus Christ, God put you into Christ, counts you, logically counts you to be in Christ. You're here, but he counts you to be in Christ. And he says, you died with Christ. So Christ is the one that actually died, but he counts you to have shared in that crucifixion. Counts you to have shared in his burial, and counts you to have shared in Christ's resurrection. Paul bears that all out. Because Christ died in your place. That's right. And when you believe into him, what, what Christ accomplished, God is now counting true of you. In Christ. Now you can waltz through life and not Think about that. Not do anything with it. God still counts you to have died with Christ. Still counts you to have been buried. Still counts you to be raised. Even counts you to be seated in Christ every moment of every day. Whether you take time to think about that or not. But what happens when you think about that? It changes you. And the result is, right here in verse 20, he says that I have been jointly crucified with Christ but I live, but no longer I, but Christ lives in me. So he says, you know, when I'm remembering that I died with Christ and I'm alive with Christ, Christ is the one that's living in me. Literally. Literally, he's living out his life, eternal life. He's living that out in me. It's not just a, it's not just a, I got a set of rules over here and I'm going to obey those rules and try to act better. It's that this is what God says is true of me. And when I relate to that, when I'm thinking about that, as Paul says, I'm, in this context, he says, I look at it by faith. Why faith? Because I'm saying, he's got a promise. He's got a promise for me. That's Remember, faith always has to have a promise from God. He's got a promise that if I remember who I am in Christ, he will live out his life in me. Jesus made that promise, didn't he? In John 15, he says, if you abide in me, I will abide in you. So if you are, if you get up there, remember who you are, and you're at ease, that same word abide that he used for the Thessalonians with the word of God, being comfortable in them, 
If you are comfortable with the fact that you're in Christ, he'll be comfortable in you. He's always in you, but he'll be comfortable in you, and he'll live out his life. And you can bear, he goes on over there in John 15, you'll bear fruit. There'll be some fruit that'll come out in your life. And so here, this is a good example of the fact that the word of God is at ease, but you got to believe that. You got to you got to accept the fact that this is this is the word of God, and then you relate to that. So that's the example. Uh, using this as an example here of what there was another one we could go to in chapter five, but instead of belaboring it, we'll leave it at that. But he says back over there, First Thessalonians two, and verse thirteen, when he says. The word of God is doing this work in you. It's the fact that the word of God's taught you who you are in Christ. It explains it, especially for us. And so as you relate to that truth, that truth is real. It's not just a, a static fact that's hanging out there and you don't do anything with it. It's a reality that God tells you to relate to. And when you think about that, you go, I really am seated at the Father's right hand in Christ because I really died with Christ and I was buried and I was raised with him. God says that of me. I didn't go through the experience of any of those things, but God counts it true. And I don't need it to be any truer than what God says. And I relate to that, and the word of God makes a difference in me, and Christ lives out. Now, with that, so does that answer that, illustrate that question for you? Okay. So now we're going to go from verse 13 down to verse 14 here in 1 Thessalonians, and he says, for you were caused to become imitators. Again, we come across another one of these words. Uh, my English says, for you, brethren, became imitators. But it's another one of these passive verbs in here that our English Bibles all translate like they're active verbs. You became. Uh, you went to school. You went to college. You studied in college, for, for I'm talking about Peggy, I use example, example. You go take classes, and you graduate with a certificate saying, you're a teacher. You can teach in a school now, because you are certified by somebody that says they know better, and they're not going to say you're a teacher, whether you really can teach or not. Okay, But you became that, and she didn't just become that on the grace of some teachers. She became that because of hard work. And she did work hard because we dated during some of that and we were married during some of that. And I know all the nose to the grindstone that she did in college to get her teaching degree. She worked hard for that. And she became a teacher. That's an active verb. This is not an active verb here. All that to illustrate verse 14, when you became imitators, this isn't an active verb. This is a passive verb. You were caused to become. This would be the teachers at that college saying, if you're willing to come and sit over here, we guarantee you'll be a teacher. She goes, well, what do I have to do? Just, just, just be here. That's all. Homework? Just be here. Now, we'd look at that and say, well, that's foolish. But that's what God does with us. God just says, remember you died with Christ. Well, don't I have to, don't I have to crucify myself? Don't I have to get up every day and go, oh, i got to be a better person today. God's got a will for me, and I better be at it. Isn't that what it is? No. It's that, hey, I'm already seated at the Father's right hand. Whatever he wants for me, if he wants me to sit today, I will sit. If he wants me to move today, we'll move. But it's just because it's what he's doing. 
And so he uses it. To me, it's just so interesting. We've, I know I, we've been over this several times, but every time we come to one of these, it's important again for us to stop and hit these passive verbs that this is what God was doing. Now, keep in mind, is there something the Thessalonians did? If God caused them to become imitators, what did the Thessalonians do? Sit on their hands? Just sit there and wait for God to move them? No. This is the last verse. The word of God was at ease in them. The word of God worked in them because they were okay with the word of God. When they heard the word of God, they were like, that's what God said. They take him at his word. And so when he says, you, you abide in who you are in Christ, and the word will, this word will work, in the, in the response to that, God then causes them. They don't have to try to figure out, oh, how, how do I become an imitator? How, how do I, I have to copycat these people? Because that's what we think of when we think imitating. In fact, when this word is used of imitating God as beloved children. It's used of imitating Christ in different passages. But the problem with that is, is then people read the Gospels and they go, oh, well, Jesus did this, and so I should try to do that. And Jesus did this. So Jesus fed the 5,000. I better try to figure out how to do that. Jesus walked on water. Well, I better figure out how to do that. But that's not the way you imitate him. Because, in fact, notice what he says here in verse 14. For you were caused to become imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are where? Had the Thessalonian believers met the Christians in the churches in Judea? No. They've only been saved a short time. By the time Paul writes 1 Thessalonians, very likely that these people have only been saved maybe two months. And in two months' time, they have not had a chance to have any contact with the believers way over in Judea. Remember, this is pre-phone day. They can't just pick up a phone and go, hey, Paul told us about you guys. Now, that's a long trip by foot or boat, from where they are in Thessalonica, which is up in Macedonia, uh, northern end of Greece, to get all the way down there to Judea. That's a long trip. They had not met these people. If they hadn't met them, how could they become imitators of them? Well, they responded to the word of God the way those believers down there responded to the word of God. They said, that's what God said. We take God at his word. And God then does a work in those people. You don't have to look at them and go, oh, you're doing it like that, so we're going to do it like that. We had a book that came into the library today about a big sister and her little sister, and the little sister all the way through the book. You know, Alia does this, and I do it too. Alia does this, and I do it too. You know how it is with little kids copying their older siblings because they want to be like their bigger brother or sister? That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about imitators because they both related to the word of God the same way. And so he says, they, you became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus. So we're not just saying some assemblies down there. I think it's important. This is Paul's first letter. First Thessalonians, Paul's first letter. And it's important that when he says the churches of God or the assemblies of God that are in Christ Jesus, if he just said assemblies down there those people go well there's all kinds of assemblies down there but a lot of them weren't what we would call churches today they weren't christians they were just people getting together in fact 
um, I'm for another study that we're doing in Ephes in, in Ephesians. We're, we're going through Acts, and in Acts, there's a big assembly in in, in Acts in the book of uh, in the city of Ephesus, and it's an assembly of the unbelievers that essentially, I think they want to pound Paul if they could. They really dislike him, and the whole city gets in an uproar over it. And they're warned of an unlawful assembly by one of their city leaders. So he says that these are the assemblies or churches of God that are in Christ Jesus, and they're down in Judea. How? For you endured the same kind of sufferings, not absolutely identical sufferings, but the same kind of suffering at the hands of your countrymen, that is of the Greek, the Macedonian people up there in Thessalonica, even as they did from the Jews, which were their fellow countrymen. So when the Jews down there in Judea heard the gospel and believed, everybody around them didn't jump for joy. If you remained an unbelieving Jew, and that was most of them. Let's put it this way. The church has probably always been, in almost most settings, the church has probably only been maybe 1% or 2% of the population. And so down there in Jerusalem, or Jerusalem, in Judea, most of those people remained unbelieving Jews. And when these people became believers in Jesus Christ, the unbelieving Jews hated this. In fact, the Apostle Paul that's writing this, remember when we first meet him in Acts? What's he doing? He's persecuting the church. He's going from house to house and dragging both men and women out into the streets and hauling them off and throwing them in jail and being involved in their trials where some of them are even being put to death. When we first meet him, he's standing watching the coats of the men that are stoning Stephen to death for being a believer in Jesus Christ. This is what was going on. And that persecution, we're told in Acts, started there and it spread out so that it caused those Christians to scatter. Because they were supposed to do that in the first place, weren't they? Isn't that what Jesus told them to do? Did he say, go to Jerusalem, stay there, you'll get the Holy Spirit, and just hang out and have a holy huddle forever? <clears throat> I don't like it, personally, when people like Josh and Faye say, God wants us to go to the other side of the world. I'm like, no, no, you need to stay here with us. But you know what? God doesn't ask us to stay in holy huddles. God has asked people from the very beginning to be willing to go to other places. And like it's, Royal City. And like Royal City, maybe. That's right. <laughs> so. They cried all the way here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, and so God has taken people. He wanted those Christians to go out into other parts of the world and scatter. And, and if you remember... In the book of Acts, some of those believers ended up up in Antioch, which was a long ways, especially when you traveled by foot. That was a long ways from Jerusalem, Antioch up in Syria, not up in what we would know as Turkey today. That was a long trip up there. And that's how, anyway, Paul gets kind of wrapped up, involved in sharing in the ministry. And so he says that they, they, uh, excuse me, you, the, the Thessalonians, you suffered at the hands of your countrymen, even as the Jews suffered at the hands of their countrymen, would be the idea. What? What? As, from, as they, the believers from the Jews. Yes. And, and I, oh. Yeah, so you suffered at the hands of your countrymen, even as did the Jews from, their, by ellipsis, their countrymen. 
He doesn't say that, but he's saying that by ellipsis. It's implied, obviously. And then, he, and then he says in verse 15 about these Jews who both killed. Now, keep in mind, I made this comment a couple, I think it's a couple years ago right now. I, I, I'm on a, you guys, some of you guys met Dan Ray last year at a Bible conference. And he had asked me several years ago to get on and answer some questions on a Facebook group. Uh, and so I, I put some stuff in there and I was there and somebody had asked a question on a, on a topic, like I said, like, like two years ago, maybe, I'm going to guess. And I answered this question and I quoted Peter. I just, and I just quoted the verse. That's all I did was quote this verse. And this one guy that's part of this group that is of Jewish background, he's a Christian that is a Jew by birth. If you're a Christian and you're a Jew by birth, what does God say you are now? You're a Christian. You're a Christian. You're part of the church of God. Are you a Jew anymore? No. Not from God's point of view. Am I a Gentile anymore? No. Not from God's point of view. He tells us those things are gone once you're in Christ. But some of those people don't get that. They still think if you're a Jew... And these people are dispensationalists, by the way, which just flies in the face of dispensationalism. But they think if you're a Jew, it's like you've kind of got to, you're like head and shoulders above all the rest of Christians, which is contrary to what the New Testament says. And I think it's interesting here. I, I, I quoted Peter and this guy goes, you can't say that about the Jews. That's a horrible thing. And I said, I was just quoting Peter. And he goes, well, it doesn't make any difference. Peter was a Jew and he could say that. But you're a Gentile and you can't say that about Jews. I said, I'm just quoting what Peter, I wasn't even, that wasn't even the point, was to, what, my point is, what was, part of Peter this was over in Acts chapter 2, it was something, and I couldn't even tell you what it was, but it was a statement Peter made in Acts 2, and, uh, that's the same mentality that was going on at the beginning of the church between the Jews and the Gentiles, oh yeah, and it builds and moves on and on, mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, and I just, I finally just, after, after I couldn't get this through, I finally just went back and I said, I said, I don't personally have anything against the Jews. I My point was this, but I was quoting the whole verse, and in that whole verse, Peter made this kind of harsh comment about the Jews killing Christ in there. This, He says that they need to believe in this Jesus whom you crucified, God raised up. And, he's, and he said, you can't, he says, you can't make them Christ killers. I just, all I was doing was quoting Peter. I had, not, I had no intention of making any slight against the Jews. That was not the point of, this, of my reply anyway. But it is interesting here. This is Paul, who had been a Jew, who had been one of these people that resisted Christ and had resisted the church. And notice what he says in verse, 7, verse 15, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, in other words, he's saying that's why we Jews are scattered throughout the world. When Peter writes 1 Peter, he writes about, he was writing to people who'd been scattered because of this persecution. James, when he wrote, he wrote to the Jewish Christians who were scattered because they'd been scattered and they were pushed out. And they are not pleasing to God, but they're hostile to our all men, Paul says. I think that's also important to, to note because there are some Christians that because we've got such a soft spot for Israel over there that we're like, aren't they kind of pleasing to God if they're trying to worship in sincerity? And no, I, God doesn't look at it on the sincerity scale. That has nothing to do with it. 
the question is, do they believe in Christ or they don't? If they believe in Christ, they're good with God. If they don't believe in Christ, they are, from God's point of view, hostile. They are contrary to the gospel. I don't care who they are. Doesn't make it Jew or Gentile. Same. And Paul says here, they're not pleasing to God. So too, uh, nowadays, that because they, of the... Oh, yeah. oh, sorry. I just wanted to clarify. A, a Jew today, um, who, who's a Jewish blood, if they are an unbeliever, they're just like all the rest of the unbelievers. They, they do not... They're going to be judged just like all unbelievers. Yeah. Yeah, there's nothing yeah. different. In fact, Paul makes the statement about them in 2 Corinthians 3, where he says that a Jew, when he reads his Old Testament, he doesn't understand it. He says he's blinded. God, is, God has given him a judicial blind that he can't make heads or tails out of his Old Testament. That so, goes along with the, the lesson from Sunday, without faith it's impossible to please him. There you go. Um, I just uh, read Jay Sukulo's story about how he became a Christian. And, uh, you know, he's, he's a Jew by Oh, I did not kids. know that. Yeah, and his mother and dad, it's kind of not really a practicing, they went to... They had a, you know, it's kind of like a Christian that Easter and Christmas. So go to synagogue a couple of times. And so they, you know, he said, I really like my bar mitzvah. <laughs> you know, that that kind of a Jew. Well, then he um, didn't do well in school. And when he was 17, he was the, um, I'll try to make this as short as no. possible. He was a, um, like Peggy's mom and dad. Uh, he was a, Assistant manager of a department store. Oh. And um, and he didn't care about going to college. And um, then uh, I think after he got out of high school, his employers wanted him to take a business class. And he went there, and he went to junior college anyway. Well, then... He got an offer from a Baptist college to go to school. And he asked his father, do you care if I go to a Baptist college? And he said, Baptist schmatches, I don't care. <laughs> so he went to the school and he met this young man who was really in God. And um, he said he really noticed it because, you know, he'd never seen any Jew that was that, you know, into his Bible. And he noticed he was reading the Bible. And um, anyway, through a relationship with this young man, and he had him uh, read Isaiah 53, and he said, to him it was obvious they were talking about Jesus. Mm -hmm. So he went uh, to a couple of Jewish guys and asked them to explain it. And they said it was either Israel or I forget the other thing. And he said, that just didn't ring true. And, you know, eventually he came to Christ. So it was, uh, <coughs> parents still, are they have not believed. Uh then, but it, it, while he was going to school, he became an attorney then. And 
Michael's first client was some Christians. I forget. Uh, it was Jews for Jesus. Hmm. Yeah. But anyway, it was an interesting account. Huh. Yeah. Huh. I used to listen to him on the radio when I used to listen to that. There was a station that he had like a 15-minute segment every day or something like that on. Yeah, so. I didn't know that he was still. I, anyway, I thought it was interesting. On the other side of it, though, there's Jews that think that, you know, like you said, you know, they'll be like, I'm a Christian Jew or like that. There's Christians, on the other hand, that want to wipe out all God's promises to Israel, and both sides are incorrect. That's right. That's right. And let's go over to Romans 11. Let's go to Romans 11. Because the man that wrote, wrote the verses we just read there in 1 Thessalonians, Paul, same man that writes Romans. And notice what Paul says here in Romans <laughs> chapter 11 and verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, keep in mind, he's not saying that makes him a better Christian. He's simply citing those to say, by nationality, this is my background. This was my pedigree. So here I am, a believer that's come from these people. So God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scriptures say in the passage above that Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. And I alone am left and they are seeking my life. And what is the divine response? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to, to Baal. And in the same way, then, there also has come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But it is by grace, then it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. By the way, verse 6 is a really good place to help define grace. Grace eliminates works in terms of any kind of merit. But the point going back to verse 6 is there's a remnant. Is a remnant the larger part or the smaller part? It's the smaller part. That's the idea of a remnant. And so then having done that, as he goes through this passage, if you look down here in Romans chapter 11, and I want to go down to verse 25, he says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be ignorant or uninformed of this mystery, lest you should be, and we have this expression in the, in the Greek, which is wise, uh, I've got to try to get this, wise in your own uh, estimation. The Greek, the Greek uses a word, that word wise is not our word for wisdom. It's the idea of setting your attitude or your frame of mind. And he says, you don't set your attitude or frame of mind around yourself. In other words, you are not the be-all, end-all. You are not the center of the universe. <laughs> but that's real easy to say, and that's what he's trying to get. Don't set, don't set your frame of mind on yourselves that, with regard that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And it's partial because it wasn't over the whole nation. There's a remnant that aren't hardened. But most of them are unresponsive to the gospel, Paul says. And he's warning them 
against this very attitude, like Leslie was saying, this attitude that we can have that said that we could we could we could either go and just think, oh, Israel is everything. Oh, we just pursue after Israel all the time, or we can go, Israel, they're Christ killers, which Peter called them that. But did Christ also die on the cross for my sins? Yeah, I did. So even though I wasn't personally standing there raising my hand, say, crucify him, crucify him, I would have been had I been there. Because it was my sins that put him on the cross. Because he was crucified from the foundation of the world. That's right. So, so as we look at this, we need to remember that we need to, at the same time, we don't, we don't bow to the Jews, but neither do we say, exterminate them, get rid of them all, kick them off into the sea. We realize that they're still part of God's plan. God has a future plan for the people of Israel. When he's done dealing with the church, which is made up of people from Jews and Gentiles all together, he's going to resume a distinct work that he will do with the people of Israel. We've been over that many times in different places. Um, so it is, it's very important to be warned against this because there are there are a lot of people in Christianity that uh, that do not, in Christianity in the broad sense, <laughs> I'm saying, but even probably some people who are real believers. So if we go back to 1 Thessalonians 2, <coughs> when he's talking about at the end of verse 15, the idea that they're hostile or contrary to all men, this word is translated hostile, at the end of verse 15, but they are hostile or they are contrary they're those that are in opposition. It's like, you say black, I say white. You say red, I say green. It's, they're always, they're just, they, they just don't want to come into agreement. And he's expressed kind of how they're contrary. They're contrary, he expresses this, by hindering us so that we should not speak to the Gentiles in order that they might be saved. And, uh, and, Let's go take a let's go take a look at this example. Keep your finger here and turn over to Acts chapter thirteen. In Acts chapter thirteen, and uh, let's go to verse um, fourteen. Acts 13, 14, it says, But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brother, if any of you have a word of encouragement for the people, say it. And Paul stood up, motioning with his hands, and said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And then he goes through and he gives this, this history of the people of Israel that brings them down to the point of Christ, and he says, um, uh, let's go to verse 25. And while John was completing this, John the baptizer, by the way, was completing his course, he kept saying, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not him, but behold, one coming after me, whose sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. By the way, that's a reference to the deity of Christ, isn't it? I'm not even worthy to untie. His. So, he's, so in some way, John recognized this Jesus to be God in flesh. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God, uh, to us the word of this salvation is sent out. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers 
recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him that is condemning Christ. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, in other words, they had to bring trumped up charges because every legitimate charge they tried to bring against him fell flat on his face because he was innocent. So they had to bring false charges. And they asked Pilate that he be executed or in that word that's translated executed, I always find it interesting. In the Greek, in the New American Standard translate executed. But the Greek word is literally to get rid of a nuisance. So they look at Jesus as a burr under their saddle to be gotten rid of. Okay. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross. They laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And that's the gospel. Right off 1 Corinthians 15. He was crucified on a cross. They put him in a, They buried him. But God raised him again from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him. We're going to skip down a little, a little bit further. And go down, because you have a, a promise down below in verse 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through him the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. And through him, everyone who believes is declared righteous. New American Standard has the word freed, but it should be declared righteous or justified from all things from which you could not be declared righteous through the law of Moses. And then he goes on and he begins to talk about these things in verse 42. And as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. And so they make an arrangement to do that. So the people are like, oh, this is very interesting. We want, we want to hear more about this next week, next Sabbath day. So they go on through the week. And the next Sabbath day, verse 44, and the next Sabbath Nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of God. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. And they began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. And in other words, when they're, they're sitting they're sitting there going, uh, we've been in the city running the synagogue for a long time. And now the Gentiles all come out to hear this Paul. Now they wanted to hear what Paul said the next week. But they're so jealous over the fact that the city is coming out to hear Paul, but they never came out to listen to them. That now they contradict. And they basically run Paul off in this situation. In verse, uh, just notice what, verse 44, and Paul and Barnabas, 46, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you, uh, they translate repudiate it, literally a word just meaning you push it away from yourselves and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. I've, I've used this verse before when I share the gospel with people, that if you choose not to believe, yeah, that's your choice, but you need to understand when you choose not to believe in Jesus Christ, you are judging yourself to be unworthy of eternal life. So exactly what Paul says here, by rejecting the gospel. I don't know that an unsaved person gets that. They, that may go over their heads. But Paul said it here. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For thus the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you should bring salvation to the end of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, they believed. So to me, it's so interesting as he goes down through this and talks about this, that Paul's... The, the, Exactly what Paul says over there in First Thessalonians chapter 2, they hinder us. They don't want us to talk to the Gentiles. And this is a good example. But it happened in Thessalonica. Who caused the problem in Thessalonica? 
turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17 and verse 1. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them. And for three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a great multitude of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. But the Jews becoming jealous. So these are the Jews that don't believe, obviously. And taking along some, some wicked men from the marketplace, uh, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, which to me is really interesting that they then say, say, these guys set the city in an uproar. They're the ones that did it, not Paul and Silas. But we have that same thing here. And they grab Jason, drag him out of the house, take him before the people, and they make these people put up a financial bond, which I've tried to, and I have no idea what that would be. But, you know, you know, if, if, if somebody came to town and did this and they grabbed Gary and I and drug us down to City Hall... And they made Gary and I each put up a $1,000 financial bond. I, I'm just trying to illustrate this. Gary and I would go, ouch. But if they made Gary and I both put up a $10,000 financial bond, we might go, ouch, you know, wouldn't it? So in other words, I'm just I'm trying to make the point. I have no idea what this was, how much. But I'm just trying to make the point. It was a, it was a significant enough financial bond that it intimidated these people into sending Paul away. Not that these Christians didn't want Paul around anymore, but I think Paul wisely didn't want these people to jeopardize their livelihood by losing all this money over this situation. And so Paul leaves. But again, this is resistance. And so when Paul makes this statement here, but notice who was involved in the resistance and the problem. Jews as well as men lounging in the marketplace, which would have been some of their people. But then they get the whole city wound up in an uproar and cause this problem in Thessalonica. And so this is what Paul says there in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 16. They hinder us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. With the result that they are always filling up then the measure of their sins. But, he says, but the wrath of God, but the wrath of God has come upon them to to the to the end or to an end a quality of end now what paul's talking about this last this last expression here that a rat, the wrath of god has come upon them unto a point or to an end goal we have two words in the new testament that are translated wrath both of those words in mo just put them in modern english that mean anger we don't use the word wrath a great deal in modern language. It's okay. Some of us get it, but it's angry. And this word of the two seems to be more like the anger expressed outright, whereas the other word seems to express a little bit more like the anger when it's kind of boiling and cooking inside before it's boiled over out of the pan. Okay, But the two words go together. In fact, the two words occur quite a bit in the book of Revelation. He's talking about this anger of God or this wrath of God has come upon them. There's a time coming in the future that God calls Daniel's, or well, he doesn't call it Daniel's seventh week. We call it that, but it is the 70th week that he 
when he described those 70 weeks over in Daniel 9, there's one of those left. And it's not seven days, it's seven years. Because he doesn't say weeks technically over there in the Hebrew. He says 77s is what he says. Okay. And the Jews understood. They, they got that because remember they worked not only on a seven day system, but they worked on a seven year system. So they got, so the Jews understood this. But there's seven years left in that. Sometimes we call it the tribulation. There's a part of it called the great tribulation. It's That's called. Also in, with Jacob, he worked a week. Seven years. seven years, yeah. So we've got a number of examples of that. And in that time, we are told that when that is done, God's anger will be ended, culminated. God won't, be, won't express anger anymore. When he judges the nations at the end, when they stand before him at the great white throne, when they're cast in the land of fire, he is a judge that is not fuming, banging his gavel, get out of my sight. He's not doing that. He calmly is judging them. What does Jesus say? I never knew you. I don't, you and I have had no relationship. I mean, isn't that really what he's getting at when he says that? Makes that statement in Romans seven, or Matthew seven. He says, "I'm going to say to those people, I never knew you. I don't know who you are. We have no interaction with each other." Now, does he know each and every person? Yeah, he knows every individual because he's involved. He's the God of the universe. But he says, "But I don't personally know you by any interaction." And he doesn't fume at them. And when he sends them to the Lake of Fire, he doesn't fume at them. They just—it's just. It's just Righteous judgment for unbelief. Anger, when God expresses his anger, that's different. Which is why that time of Jacob's trouble, those seven years, are so intense with so many horrible judgments and things that are poured out. But there's a... Um, let me see if I can look. I want to find our verse here on this. I've skipped over some verses I had written down on my my notes. I don't always hit every last verse we have here. We could actually spend the whole evening because I've got like a whole section on the wrath of God in my notes that I have gone over in the past. And maybe we'll come back to this next week and deal with this, but I just want to hit this before we close. And I'm looking for... Hmm. I'm just not seeing it right here in my notes at the time. I thought I had all these marked. Anyway, there is a sample of God's wrath that God was going to express to the people of Israel in just a few years from the time he writes this. In 70 AD, Titus is going to bring his armies. They're going to surround Jerusalem. Eventually, Jerusalem will fall to Rome. It's going to be nobody walks away. <laughs> and it's an expression of God's wrath. But it's just, it's it's a, it's a sample of God's wrath. This is God's wrath. They're getting a sip out of God's wrath. My mother-in-law used to bake cakes and different things like that. And if it was, a, if she was taking a cake to someplace else, fine, it, it it survived. But if she was making a cake for the family, if you walked in there, there was always a little piece missing in the corner. Was, yeah, she always said it wouldn't be any good. She always said a corner baked out. Because <laughs> she'd take a fork and she would just take a sample just to, t 
to test it to see if it tasted any good. I I know. What? I know. Oh, I didn't know. Now that I didn't know. But I I use that as a nose. She 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 wasn't eating the whole cake. She's eating a little sample of that cake. She's eating one little sample of it. And that's what is true with what happened in 70 AD when God judged the nation of Israel uh, in Jerusalem, was that that was a sample of God's anger. We'll come back and we're going to deal with a number of verses with regard to the anger of God next week. Uh, to put it, to take them on now, it, it would be, our study would go quite long. So, in this translation that I have, uh, at the end of 16, verse 16, it says, As a result, they are always completing the number of their sins, and wrath has overtaken them, up, overtaken them at last. And so I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure that out. Is uh, And I wouldn't say at last. What it is, it says, it says, it says, no, it's it's literally it's the idea that wrath has arrived. It had it's a, it's a word like for a ship coming to shore. And it's like the wrath is coming to shore here with regard to them. But it's it's not unto the end in this. Literally, the Greek is unto a quality of end. So God's going to bring. Let's put it this way: Does Judaism, as God designated, does Judaism exist today? No. The minute he destroyed the temple, the minute it, Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed, Judaism ended. Because Judaism, from its start, was always about the tabernacle and the temple and the rituals that they practiced up there. God prescribed an activity that they could do if they were taken in captivity to pray towards that place, which Daniel did. But they went back and rebuilt that because that's what God had designated. Okay, Ronnie, I'm... I'm still trying to figure out, so how should that... Um, I, would, I would simply say that the wrath of God has arrived upon them. The ship, is, the ship of God's wrath uh -huh. has, has come in, and it's unto a quality of end. So God's going to bring something to an end. What he's bringing to an end is Judaism. He's bringing Judaism to an end. It's not the end. It's a quality of end. Because Judaism isn't ended-ended. It's going to resume out in the future. And in fact, to some degree, there'll be a temple and law even during the kingdom that God will establish. But he, in Daniel, he asked what is left for the Jewish people. And it's one more week. Yeah, yeah. That's near the end. Yeah. Just one more week for him. Right. And that, uh, so is, is that bringing Judaism to a quality of an end, is what you said. So that, uh, a little bit of God's wrath? Yeah, that's what he, he actually says it is. Yeah, it says it's a quality of God's wrath. Mm -hmm. We have that in, uh, we've got, well, I'm going to save those for next week, but we have a few places in the New Testament that indicate that there are different times when God has demonstrated a little bit of his wrath. When What God did to Sodom, was a little sample of his wrath. Destroyed a big area. It destroyed two big cities and a number of other smaller cities all within a, 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 within a small geographical area. It didn't destroy Jerusalem. When that happened, well, 
Jebus at that time, what ended up becoming Jerusalem, didn't destroy that. Uh, so it destroyed a number of things. So it was a very small, so that's just a sample. It's like a drop of God's wrath that brought that destruction on Sodom and Gomorrah. What he did with Jerusalem was just a drop. And Paul also, and we'll, like I said, I'm, we'll go over some of that more next week where we'll look in more detail at, at some statements about the wrath of God or the anger of God. Do you may have any other questions on this? Did, did that answer that well enough? Uh, well, okay. So what does it mean they were they are always completing the number of the sins? How does how does this happen? It says literally there, well, my the, the Greek the Greek text actually says that they are always filling up their sins. In other words, Paul doesn't ever find a time that these guys aren't continually the very thing that's brought this judgment on them is the fact that they just keep persisting in doing this sin. They not only rejected Jesus Christ back at the cross, but they reject anybody else that wants to accept Jesus Christ. And so they just keep filling it up okay. by being more and more resistant to that. That's the way I would understand that in the context by keeping Paul from, from preaching the gospel to the, to the Gentiles even so that they might be saved. That's these people persistently repeating what they did when they stood before Pilate and said, crucify him. They still, they still don't want this. And again, I, I, this comes to mind, I'm thinking this out of the book of Acts, where um, at the end, at the crucifixion, at the time of the crucifixion, um, Pilate says, uh, Pilate stands, washes his hands before the people, and I might be getting kind of the order wrong, but he says, he says, he says, I'm, I'm innocent of this man's blood. I find no guilt in him. And the people go, let his blood be on our heads. And then when you fast forward a, a few months or maybe uh, a year, I don't know, six months, a year, we don't know how long it is, you have the situation where Peter and John are preaching. And what do the leaders say there? You are determined to bring this man's blood upon us. Well, they said his blood's on us. Well, now, and, and Peter and John weren't standing there castigating these people, particularly. It's But these people just, they, uh, to me, it's just, it's very ironic that the very thing that they said, that's okay, let it, it's on us. That when it actually really was, when they were held responsible for it, they didn't like that. Anybody else? So, Jesus died for our sins, including the Jews' sins. That's right. But the forgiveness of sins comes by faith. Um, and so, at the end, when the unbelievers are judged at the great white throne, it's because they didn't believe. Because they didn't believe, which is what Jesus said in John 16. He says of sin because they, you believe not, or they believe not on me. Yeah. Go to 